Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5? We'll be looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. All right, thanks. And I hope you've been enjoying our study in this letter that Paul wrote. I just think it's one of those uh, easier books you might say to preach on because it's just so rich all the way through with uh, uh, particular points that are applicable to our life today. A few weeks ago, I was at a conference uh, down at our seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and it was on the scriptures. And one of the speakers there made an interesting comment. You know, we, we affirm, we believe in the inerrancy of scripture. We believe that this book, all of it, is God's inspired word. And it is sufficient uh, to meet our needs. It is uh, powerful. It is eternal. I mean, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And that uh, even down, as Jesus talked about, to the very kind of stroke of a T or the dot of an I, it is inspired and it is true. Well, one of the speakers there made the comment, he said, one of the ways that we as pastors model that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture is by preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse, that every word, every verse is important for us to hear and understand. And that's really, I mean, that's behind why I preach the way I do, wanting to take us through the Scripture, because it's not my words that change lives. It's the Word of God. <clears throat> that is powerful and that changes lives. So let's pray as we begin today. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for your word. It is truth. And it is what gives us the wisdom that we need to live in a way that honors you. It shows us the path of salvation. It lifts up your son, Jesus. It tells us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It tells us what is to come in the future and gives us a picture of that great day when we will be gathered once again in your presence. And Father, I pray that your word would do its work in our life today. As we talk about this particular section of Scripture that speaks of your love and your holiness, Father, I pray that we would be like you, that we would become more and more like your Son. In his name we pray, amen. In the spring of 1903, Harvard University was constructing a new building to house their philosophy department. It would be called Emerson Hall, named after the great American philosopher and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the president of the university wanted to uh, have some sort of fitting uh, statement that would be inscribed in stone above the entrance to this uh, philosophy department. And so he asked the faculty to come up with a suggestion. And they went, and they began to meet and talk and debate. And finally, they came up with a quote from the Greek philosopher Protagoras that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. They thought that would be a good statement to reflect the philosophy department. But when they returned in the fall, to their chagrin, they saw that instead the president had inscribed these words from Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Those two statements represent two different ways of looking at the world, don't they? 
In the one view, man looks at himself and he thinks that, you know, he's the one who's at the center of the universe. That we are the one who determine what truth is or what morality is based on our standards. And that's the way many people live their lives in our world. That we're at the center, we determine what's right and wrong, what's true or false. And the other view acknowledges God as the creator, our creator, the maker of heaven and earth. And that truth and morality are not determined by what we think, but truth and morality are what God has revealed in his holy word. And we need to bring our lives into line with what he has said. And you see that in the Apostle Paul's teaching all the way through this. I mean, he speaks of the conflict between these two worlds. We see it today. He saw it back then. And there are two different ways that people can choose to live. And in this passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul calls us to live by the highest standard of all when he says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. On the one hand, you look at that and you think imitate God, that's, that's impossible, and it is. I mean, if you think about God and what are called his incommunicable attributes, God is eternal. He's always existed, always has been, always will be. We are not. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He didn't create us because he had some sort of void in his life or absence. He created us because he is love. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And in those areas, we will never be like God. But on the other hand, there are areas where we can be like him as a child is like his father. As a child imitates his father. We will never be like him perfectly in this life, but we can be like him in increasing measure because of his presence in our life and the work of his Holy Spirit. So there's two areas in particular that Paul called us to be like God in this passage. And he tells us that we are to be like God in love and in purity. Let's take a look. I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 7 as we get into the text today. Paul says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, that no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a man as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Well, let's take a look at the first of these uh, points that Paul is making here. We are to be like God in love, and we see that in verse 2. 
He tells us that we are to live a life of love, and the example that we are to follow is that of Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. He laid down his life for our sins. And this command to love is found throughout the scriptures. It's something that Jesus himself emphasized to the disciples. For example, remember the time when Jesus was asked by someone listening to him, what is the greatest commandment? And how did Jesus answer? He said, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament there. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, there's a passage that is called the Great Shema. Shema in Hebrew means hear or hear ye. It's like that town crier who would go out into the streets in the days before the press and say, hear ye, hear ye, you know, listen up. And that verse states that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's the first and greatest commandment. And that's what Jesus was emphasizing to us. But later in his ministry, when he met with the disciples in the upper room, he also told them that love would be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. How will they know that we are his disciples? He said, the way that you will know that or the way that the world will know that is by your love for one another. A new command I give you to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It was an old command made new by Christ's example, what he was about to do when he would go to the cross and die for them. He would say, greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. And I want you, as he demonstrated in the washing of their feet, I want you to love and serve one another in the body of Christ. And here was Jesus creating a new community, calling out people from the world who would have this kind of deep commitment to one another, a people who would love God and love one another in the body of Christ, so much so that the world would see that there was something different going on. And when we truly love one another, our lives become a fragrant offering to God, an offering that is well-pleasing to him, just like Christ's sacrifice was well-pleasing to God. That's what Paul is saying in verse 2, when he, when he, when he, when he says, says, be imitators of his dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how do we grow in this? How do we become like God? Well, we watch what he does. We watch what Jesus does, and we imitate those things, if you will. You know, when you think about your own children, it is natural for children to imitate their parents. I would see it when I was growing up. Not only did I look to my parents' example to see kind of what was important, what was not, or how I should live and do that, but I, I, even as a kid, I would notice that with others. And there were times when, you know, we'd go uh, to a neighbor's place or on the farm, and I'd see, you know, a kid that was, you know, if his dad wore a cap, he wore a cap. If his dad had bib overalls on, sometimes that kid would have bib overalls on. Or if he was looking down and kind of scuffing the dirt when they talked, you know, this, the kid was doing 
doing that too. And, and you, you begin to notice those family traits that were being passed on. Uh, this past year, my son Matt was telling me about something that happened in their family. Uh, they now have four children. The oldest two are boys, six and four in that age range. And one day, Luke, the oldest, was messing around with his dad. And his dad said to him, Luke, when you mess with the bull, you get the horns. You know, he made this kind of statement, you know. And I don't know exactly the context of what was going on. But Matt said, you know, a few days later... He overheard Luke with his younger brother, Will, going, Will, you mess with the bull, you get the horns. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's an example how kids just soak things up, don't they? They're like little sponges. They hear what you say. They watch what you do. And that can be rather sobering. You want to make sure that, that what you are saying is appropriate or, or good and want to be that positive role model to them. But imitation is also a beautiful thing. There was a young man, Dave, who was talking about his father, and his father had died when he was only six years old, and that left a real loss in his life. And he said this, I spent seven years of my life devoting the majority of my time, my free time, to playing the saxophone. I didn't do that because I was musically talented. I didn't do it because I loved the saxophone or even because I loved music. I did it because I knew that my father, who died when I was six, loved music. I can still remember the day when I brought home the band sign-up sheet in fifth grade. It had a list of all the different instruments that you could play. And I can still recall looking at that sheet and not having any idea which one to choose. My only interest was based on the fact that my father, who had died, loved music. So I asked my mother... I said, Mom, what was Dad's favorite instrument? Saxophone, she replied. Decision made. That's the one I want to play. That's my favorite, too. And even though he was dead, I loved my dad, and I wanted to please him. So I found out what it was that he liked, and I did it. And loving God is no different. You and, us, you and I must find out what God likes and then do it to live in a way that pleases him. And really, that's why we come to his word. That's why he gave it to us, so that we could see how much he loves us. We could understand how we are to live in this world. And when we live within the boundaries that God has given, there's joy and there's freedom and there is great reward. We are to love God as dearly loved children. But secondly, he goes on to say also that we are to be like God in purity. In purity. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. That among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So Paul calls us to holiness, and he applies this to two areas of life. He said we are to be pure, first of all, in our conduct, in our behavior. There must not even be a hint of these kind of things that he mentioned. And let me just kind of walk through it and, and just tell you what these words mean in, in the Greek as well as what we understand them in English. He talked about there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. The word in Greek is porneia. And it refers to sexual sin of any kind. 
premarital sex, it's out of bounds. Adultery, it's not in God's word. It's not for us to do. Prostitution, homosexual sex, pornography, it's all out of bounds. And I know that that's a countercultural message. I know that this place in the church, in the word of God, is the only place you're going to hear that. I know the statistics that today 60% of couples live together before they get married. But God's word says that that is sin. That we are to wait until that day when we stand before God and we uh, pledge our vows and our love to one another in marriage. We are to wait until that day before we have sexual intimacy with another person. You know, and God makes it so clear. And so all of these areas, when he's talking about it, whether it's premarital sex or adultery or prostitution or homosexuality or pornography, all of those things are included under this heading when he says not even a hint of sexual immorality. There's to be no impurity. Akatharsia is the word. You can think of the English word catharsis as a word that means cleansing. When in Greek you put an A in front of it, an alpha, it negates it, and it's like, you know, instead of being clean, it's unclean. So you're using this word, and he's saying there shouldn't be a hint of any uncleanness. Anything that is vulgar, anything that is profane in our conduct or actions, out of place. It is sin. It displeases God. And then the word greed, pleonexia, refers to the lust for more and more. And so when he's talking about greed in this context, uh, it can refer to uh, money. It can refer to sex. It can refer to power. It is that unbridled lust and passion for more and more, where, the, where a person is never content. There are no boundaries. They just want to keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And they'll do it any way that they can. In Colossians 3, 5, the Word of God calls it idolatry. To put those things in our life, to live that way and put that first in our heart is to reject God, and it is idolatry. If we were to go back to Ephesus at the time when Paul wrote, you know, do a little time travel, and we go back to Ephesus, and we see what it's like, we'd see this major city on one of the main trade routes between Rome and the east and people going back and forth. The central feature of that city was the Temple of Artemis. Uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, they worshipped Artemis, this multi-breasted goddess that they worshipped. And uh, the temples like that were big business. They functioned in some ways like banks early on for commerce, but people came there to present their offerings. And prostitution was a part of that worship of this pagan deity. So they had temple prostitutes. There was homosexuality. There was adultery. There was greed. There are all these things that are going on in that day and age, just like we see today, and perhaps even more. At that time, it was common, if, if a man had the means, it was common for a man to have a mistress for sex, to have a concubine to serve them and wait on them, and then to have a wife with whom you wanted to have heirs or raise a family. And that's just the way people lived. 
And so imagine Paul coming along, and when he is establishing these churches, what is the instruction he gives to Timothy regarding leadership in the church? For those who would be an elder or a deacon in the church, he says, you must be a one-woman man. You're to be faithful to your spouse. You are to live differently than the world around you. You are to be committed to God, to Jesus Christ, and to your spouse in all faithfulness. Anything different than that is idolatry. It's idolatry. It is not fit for God's people. Wow. You know, I I think about that and I go, you know what? It's still a battleground today too, isn't it? Sexual sin is rampant. It is something we all need to fight. Uh, It's pushed at us in movies, television, advertising, and books. Uh, It's on the Internet. Sadly, today, kids are being exposed to it, to pornography even at younger and younger ages. Uh, Josh McDowell was giving a talk on this area one time, and he was talking about how how young it is, and he was trying to help parents and grandparents deal with this. And, you know, he's saying, even if in your home you have protections today because of phones and the Internet, You know, kids at the age of 10 are seeing stuff that they shouldn't be seeing. I mean, it's just out there, and it keeps getting pushed younger and younger. And so you have to have that conversation with your children. You have to be vigilant about this in terms of uh, helping them, in terms of giving them the boundaries, in terms of, you know, using things like Covenant Eyes or other programs that track and help to maintain this so that your kids are not getting into stuff that they shouldn't be getting into. And what's really sad today, I mean, last weekend, you know, you heard this on the news too, I'm sure that the movie Fifty Shades of Grey came out. And what was appalling about that is how normal the news treated it. I mean, here's a movie that... uh, is talking about things like bondage and dominance and sadomasochistic behavior. There's stalking, there's intimidation, there is control. And they're talking about this like, no problem. You know, hey, you got to see this movie. It's entertainment. You know, they're talking about 100 million copies of the book have been sold worldwide. I'm just, I'm just shaking my head at this. It's something that we should be shocked and appalled at. Our culture has gone so far, so far, that it treats these kind of things as no big deal, it's normal. But even secular psychologists are worried about the input that these books and movie will have on our youth, on the next generation. One study looked at 650 young women ages 18 to 24 who had read the books, and they found that those who had read the books were far more likely to experience eating disorders and have verbally abusive partners. Just reading the books and how it can kind of desensitize or deaden our hearts, and we begin to think that things that are out of bounds are okay. It distorts this beautiful gift that God has given to husbands and wives. That's the world we live in. 
And Paul, just like back then, God's word is calling us to say, have nothing to do with it. Not even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or greed. We are also to be pure in speech. No obscenity, no foolish talk. The word foolish talk is kind of funny in Greek. It literally means no moronic speech. You know, just no, nothing of that nature. No coarse joking, no profanity, no off-color jokes. They are out of place. But again, what's sad in our world is that, really, that's where most comedians and sitcoms dwell, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of the way, you know, they go for cheap humor, and it's usually crude, and it's usually kind of sexual overtones that go through much of the comedy, and which makes it hard to find anything worthwhile to watch. Because that's where the world is. And it begins to seep in and affect us if we give in to it. It dulls our conscience. And what's interesting in this verse to me is, look at verse 4 again. When he says that there should not be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking that are out of place, he says, but rather thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? Why is thanksgiving the antidote to sin in this area? You know, I mean, that's something I think... I. I don't know if I've got it completely. I'm going to suggest some things. But I think that's something to keep chewing on. Why is thanksgiving the antidote to sinful speech and sinful behavior? And I think one of those reasons is that sin springs from ingratitude. It's interesting, in Romans 1, uh, Starts in verse 18, goes through this whole progression of sin that takes place when people reject the truth of God and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. One of the things it says about those who reject God is rather than acknowledging God as creator and, and worshiping and serving him, they choose not to do that and neither would they give thanks to God. There it is. Romans 1.21, right in the middle of this section of rejecting God, there's this statement about they refuse to give thanks to God too. You see, I think when we acknowledge God as our creator and we give him thanks for what we've been given, it moves us away from self-centeredness to one of humility and gratitude. And it is difficult to give thanks and sin at the same time. It's difficult to do both those things at the same time. If we look at life, we look at our health, our strength, we look at the blessings we've been given, the freedom that we have, and we have an attitude of praise and thanks to God, it leads to contentment. It helps to check that attitude of greed because instead we're grateful for what we have and that even applies to the sexual area or to uh, impurity and thought and all those kind of things. If we're focusing on God as our creator, all the blessings we have in Christ, go back to Ephesians 1, all that he has prepared for us in the future, go to Revelations, and you start to think about that, God's pretty awesome and he is good. And his way is best. Walking in his way is the way of life. And what God is concerned about here is about our heart. He doesn't want us to become dull and hardened by sin or hardened of hearing. Instead, he wants us to turn to him. 
And so Paul kind of brings this point to a head when he tells us that the need for moral purity is clear in the verses that follow. Take a look at verses 5 to 7. When he talks about this need for moral purity, listen to the warnings that he gives through here. There are several. He tells us, first of all, that it is improper for God's holy people in verse 3. He tells us that it's out of place, verse 4. He tells us that it is idolatry, verse 5. He tells us that no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He goes through this list and he says, let no one deceive you. So one by one, he's going through all these reasons why these things are out of place in our life. And when he says, let no one deceive you, I mean, he's talking about the world, he's talking about its philosophers or its teachers, and he's saying, don't listen to them. Even if it's the church that is telling you that these things are okay, don't listen to it. Listen to God's word. And the reason I say that even about the church is that sadly today there are many that are just caving in on these kind of issues. Uh, many of you know the name Rob Bell. Rob Bell was just on Oprah. He's got a show on Oprah's network. And Rob Bell was on there with his wife, and he's talking about how the church, you know, eventually they're going to come around on this thing of same-sex marriage. You know, we've got we've to give it up, you know, and we just got to come along with what the world's doing and if we're going to be relevant. Got to go with the world if you're going to be relevant. That's his, his attitude. No engagement with the word of God. No discussion of what God has said in his word and his word is truth. It's just taking the cues from the world. When we do that, who are we really trying to please? I mean, are we trying to please men or are we trying to please God? And you come instead to the scripture, you come to the example of the apostles who were willing to give their life to bring the gospel to us. And they, in Acts, you know, when they were arrested and beaten and told them to no longer speak in the name of Jesus, what did they say? They said, we must obey God rather than men. That's the difference. And I pray, I pray for Rob Bell that his heart is changed and then he comes back in that relationship with God. What does the Bible say? That's our standard. And Paul will give one more reason. He'll say, because of these things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. You can uh, put those up unless there's a, yeah, on all those slides, you can put all those warnings up and just what I was talking about there. That God's, because of these things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. God's wrath is active now in our world. In Romans 1, the passage that I referred to from verse 18 to 32, part of God's judgment is giving people over to their sin. When people rebel against God, they reject him as creator, they turn away from him, God gives them over to a darkened mind. God gives them over to shameful lusts. It's a downward spiral. And again, that's why Paul is saying that there's no place in God's kingdom for those who blatantly continue in unrepentant sin. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, 
It says that they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So God's wrath is active now in our world. There is a judgment when God gives people over to their sin and the consequences of it. But even more so brings the fact that God's wrath will be shown in the final judgment. And this is what that means in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. That they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Paul is talking about that final day, and this is what it means for those who reject Christ. Everlasting destruction. Eternal destruction. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. Not seeing his glory, his grace, his beauty, his majesty, all of the things that he has prepared for those who love him. Separated for eternity. Let that sink in. Think about those that you love. And may that truth of God's word just fuel our passion for evangelism. To want all that we know to come into our relationship with Jesus Christ. When I think about entertainers or musicians who sing about hell as though it's going to be this great party and all my friends are going to be there and we're going to have this great time. They are naively foolish. Hell is real and it will be final and it will be terrible. But there is hope. I love these verses in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Paul is speaking to the church. Corinth, same kind of deal. Rampant sexual sin, all of these kind of behaviors that were going on there. And he said, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He was speaking to a church, and frankly, he goes, some of you, that's the way that you lived. You were thieves. You were perhaps prostitutes. You were living in sexual immorality. You were following the way of the world. But you came to know Christ, and your life was changed. And you now belong to him. And one day you will spend eternity with Christ. Now live like that. Live like a child of God. Ravi Zacharias tells a story that takes us back to the days um, not that long ago when Yugoslavia was under communist rule and there was oppression by the communists, but sadly there was also a corrupt church. It had kind of given in to the communists and came with this uneasy peace, if you will, and so became part of the oppression of those that really wanted to follow Christ. And one day an evangelist by the name of Yaakov arrived in a certain village. He met a man named Simmerman, 
And he began to commiserate with him on what was going on in their country, the tragedies that he had experienced. And he talked to him of the love of Christ. And Zimmerman just abruptly interrupted Yaakov and said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear anything about that. He told him that he wished to have nothing to do with Christianity. He reminded Yaakov of the dreadful history of the church in his town, a history replete with plundering, exploiting, and indeed with killing innocent people. My own nephew was killed by them, he said angrily. They wear those elaborate coats and crosses, signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs and lives I cannot ignore. And Yaakov, looking for an occasion to get Zimmerman to change his line of thinking, said, Zimmerman, can I ask you a question? Well, sure. Suppose I were to steal your coat, and I put it on, and I broke into a bank. And suppose further that the police saw me running in the distance, but they could not catch up with me. One clue, however, put them onto your track. They recognized your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and they accused you of breaking into the bank? Well, I would deny it, said Zimmerman. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say. And this analogy annoyed Zimmerman, who asked Yaakov to leave his home. Yaakov continued to return to the village periodically just to keep a friendship, to talk to Zimmerman, to encourage him, and to share the love of Christ. And finally, one day, Zimmerman asked him, Yaakov, how does one become a Christian? And Yaakov taught him the simple steps of repentance for sin, of trusting in Christ who died for you and for your sins. And he pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. And Zimmerman that day got down on his knees on the soil with his head bowed, and he surrendered his life to Christ. And as he rose to his feet, he wiped away his tears and he embraced Yaakov and he said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and he whispered to him, you wear his coat very well. Isn't that what we want? Wouldn't we want that said of us, that we were imitators of God in love and in purity? that people could see the difference he had made in our speech and in our conduct, that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ daily and we would wear his coat well. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge that is. And we know that we can only do that by the grace of God, by your work in our life. And Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for those areas where we have given into the world and followed its values rather than yours. God, help us to be overcomers who by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit are changed from one glory into another as we follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we want to wear your coat well. And we want others to come to know you too. And so I pray that as we have heard these things today that we would take it to heart and that we would live in a way that pleases you. Amen.